listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians. While you're turning there, let's talk chairs for just a minute once again. Uh, I've got some bad news, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. Uh, the bad news is uh, chairs are expensive. Um, kind of with that, the bad news is the new chairs will not be here before Easter, unfortunately. They are held up in port. Um, so, at any rate, uh, the good news is that we have the money to pay for them. But the bad news is that money is still in your pocket. And so, uh, we really need you to generously give toward the new chairs. Also, um, if you would like to have one of those beautiful metal folding chairs, we would be delighted for you to take one or two or eight of those home if you need some extra metal folding chairs at your house for family gatherings and that kind of thing. Um, I would suggest maybe a $5 donation for each of those. And uh, we have a special for you today. Uh, If you want to take some of those with you, I'll help you load them in your car, okay? Um, And so, yes, new chairs are coming. I'm glad for that, but unfortunately, they will not be here before Easter, which I was hoping for. What we are going to do, hopefully, because we've got company coming, right? Uh, We're going to move some chairs from the sanctuary over here in the meantime to replace some of these metal folding chairs. So it may be that some of you are sitting in one of those metal folding chairs today for the last time. There you go. I thought for sure we would get at least some of the ones actually sitting in them back there. I know they are not comfortable. Um, and I, I was asked last night out at the campfire if I enjoyed having last Sunday off. Uh, most of you, if you were here, you know that Jace uh, preached, very capably preached. Um, I was here and actually got to sit down during the sermon. I never get to sit down during the sermon. Uh, and so it was really nice. And really more than that, it allowed me to enjoy my spring break a little more because I was not consumed with... Uh, preparing a sermon and all those things uh, for last Sunday. So I appreciate and I'm thankful that we have uh, guys here that are fully capable of, of jumping in and, and expounding God's word uh, for you and with you. Um, and so with that, I'm delighted to be back right here in my uh, regular spot, you might say, as we together once again open this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And I want to remind you a little bit of where we've been so far in Paul's letter here, the Corinthian church has descended into factionalism, uh, judgmentalism, divisiveness, uh, and that has been driven, uh, as uh, Jace pointed out last week, has been driven and fueled, uh, as most sin is, really we could fundamentally say all sin is uh, driven and fueled by the sin of pride. It's at the very heart of sin. Uh, They have been boasting in themselves, and Paul is writing to the Corinthians to address Uh, this issue, among others, of course. When I look at the the letter uh, to the church at Corinth, it's a lot like a parent sitting down with uh, one of their kids when they uh, need to be corrected. And there are times in that conversation when it gets really serious. It gets pretty intense. The intensity level gets turned up, and it's like, I want you to look me right in the eye right now, because i got something important to say to you. And it may be a little uncomfortable, and it may even bring some tears sometimes. 
And then hopefully, if you're doing it right, you bring them back around to a place where you make certain that they understand you're issuing this correction in love. And we really see that here in these last few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. We see the intensity of really verses 8 through 13 and then verses 14 through 21. uh, Paul admonishes them more in a fatherly sort of way. And so this, this, some of these issues have really occupied his attention since uh, the second half of chapter 1 until now. And as we consider the last part of chapter 4 here, we're seeing Paul bring his discussion of those issues, of this pride, this division, this judgmentalism at Corinth to a conclusion. Uh, Jace last week did a great job of covering really verses 1 through 7 here in chapter 4. And we saw where in in verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses how to deal with pride and judgmentalism, uh, particularly when we are on the receiving end uh, of people's prejudices, when they judge us. Verses 6 and 7, then, of course, he helps us deal with uh, pride and the divisiveness that it can cause when we find that pride lurking and festering in our own hearts. Um, And so in this morning's text, Paul makes two final points about pride and division at Corinth. In verses 8 through 13, he will deal with the Corinthians and their faulty expectations. What we're going to discover is that the prosperity gospel is nothing new. Because fundamentally, Paul addresses what is the prosperity gospel. That was, that was finding root, and it was springing to life in the Corinthian church. And so he addresses these faulty expectations. And then in verses 14 through 21, as I mentioned, he concludes with really a family exhortation. Faulty expectations and a family exhortation. Those are the two big themes under which we're going to consider the last part of chapter 4 here today. So let's pick it up together in verse number 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Verse number 11 says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? I want us to first consider the faulty expectations 
of these Corinthian believers. They had faulty expectations about the Christian life. If you've ever been told, if you would just commit your life to Jesus Christ, if you would become a Christ follower, that everything in your life would, would get easier, you would enjoy health and wealth and, and all of these sorts of things, I, I've got to tell you this morning, you've been lied to. That is fundamentally the prosperity gospel. And these people had begun adopting that kind of thinking. And whenever I do uh, premarital counseling, I will often talk with a couple about the fault lines that tend to run uh, through every marriage. When you stop and think about it, almost every argument, every fight that you'll have um, relates to one of these things in one way or another. Uh, these are fault lines. Money, sex, communication, or the lack thereof. And family, whether it be in-laws or raising kids or whatever the case may be. And some of you are sitting here thinking, well, we've had fights about all those things. Um, well, some of us are right there with you. Uh, most of our frustrations and problems in marriage, when you think about it, relate at least in some way to one of those areas. And the reason they are often sources of friction has to do with something else that runs through them all and makes them so challenging. And that is faulty expectations. I typically spend an entire session in my premarital counseling on expectations because it's such a critical thing. We expect too much. We have unrealistic expectations many times. We are unrealistic about how things will be and uh, be unrealistic about our spouse's needs or our own abilities in meeting those needs and all those things. I always cringe whenever someone says, you know, going into marriage, I just expect him to complete me. That sounds really good and really romantic and amazing, but when you really stop and think about that statement at the heart of it, that's a pretty tall order for a dude, okay? I mean, you'll be doing good if you can just get him to put his socks in the dirty clothes, right? So be careful about the kind of expectations that you bring into a relationship. It can really mess things up for you. And so these faulty expectations can steal the joy out of almost anything. And if we're not careful, faulty expectations can fracture relationships. And Paul sees that happening here in the Corinthians and their relationship with God. That was certainly what was happening in the fellowship there at Corinth. Faulty expectations had begun to fracture relationships and cause division. They had wrong expectations about the nature of the Christian life. Now, what you might miss here, and I think it's, it's worth noting, I don't want you to miss this. If you look at verses 8 through 13 again, kind of the first half of this morning's text, these are the things that the Corinthians were saying about themselves. And so Paul is reflecting them back to his readers with more than just a, a, a touch of biting irony, even sarcasm. Now, it's something that I, a person who has the spiritual gift of sarcasm, can really appreciate, okay? So he's saying these things sarcastically. So listen to it again with just a a bit of sarcasm in the tone. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. You could translate that, you've begun to reign. Would be that you had begun to reign, he says, that I could reign with you. You think that the glories to come have already dawned upon you in their fullness. If only it was true, Paul says. You look down at verse number 10. You are wise in Christ. You are strong. You are held in honor. We had this saying when I was a kid. 
We would say this, if somebody really thought they were getting kind of puffed up, and, and Jace even mentioned that terminology that's found in the text here last week, becoming puffed. We used to say, ooh, tough, tough, cocoa puff. <laughs> that's kind of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians here. Oh, you, y'all think you've arrived. You think you're really something. That's essentially what he's saying. And so what, we know that there's this incredible biblical tension that we call the already but the not yet. So if you've turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, already, positionally, you are free and forgiven forever. But, but in reality, we do not live in, away from, removed from the presence of sin, right? We still live, last time I checked... Hadn't watched the news today, but the last time I checked, we still live in a very broken, sinful world. I don't know about you, but this preacher is still fighting the flesh every day. Every day I get up, I got to think, man, there's some things I know I should do, but I I find it hard to do them. And there's some things I don't want to do, but it seems like my flesh just draws me in that direction. And And so Paul is saying here, what you guys have done is you've taken those things that we know are given to us in Christ, but those things are not just yet. This language of reigning and, and those kind of things, being rich and so, so forth. And so what they were fundamentally saying is we've got it all already. It's the prosperity gospel. The problem is that they looked at all the wonderful realities of the gospel into which they had been swept by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit when they believed in Jesus, and they said we've got it all already. It's all here. There's nothing more. They concluded that Christians ought to expect their fullest joys here and now, their highest blessings here and now, their sweetest experiences of grace here and now. There ought to be no suffering. There ought to be no sadness. There ought to be no poverty. There ought to be no no pain here. That's what we have in Christ, they were saying. That's the prosperity gospel. We have all we want. We are rich. We've already begun to reign. We are wise. We are strong. We are honorable. The key word in the text that I think sums up this view of the fullness of Christian blessing is that word already again. Paul is bringing that out in his writing. It's repeated twice in verse number 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. As though you were claiming in advance already right now. They have something that we know is certainly a part of, uh, of the Christian life as all things, uh, as God's redemptive plan of, of restoration uh, comes into view. But, but we're living now. We're living now. So if you're really spiritual, if you really have faith, well, then this is what you expect to see in your life. Again, it's the same message of today's prosperity gospel preachers. They'll tell you. God, God doesn't want his people to have any hardship today. And so you should expect to be healthy, wealthy, and all those sorts of things. No. Heaven on earth, already. The new creation, already. Victory over sin and suffering and sorrow, already. Your best life now, sound familiar? Already. No. And so then it brings up this problem of pride. No wonder they had a pride problem. No wonder they looked down on others that didn't quite measure up, whose sufferings they thought identified them as less spiritual, whose battle with remaining sin they considered a demonstration that they were second-rate somehow. Paul won't stand for that. So while the Corinthians think that they can get the fullness of Christian blessing already, if only you'd believe enough or if only you're spiritual enough, 
the Apostle Paul knows better. Look how he contrasts himself with them as we move into verse number 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. They were claiming that the truly spiritual Christian lives in the height of victory. But here's the Apostle Paul himself, a public spectacle. He says, like a man sentenced to death, counted a fool for Christ's sake, weak, and held in general disrepute. So he's saying, you got to live in the present hour. It's the already... But they're not just yet. So if the key word that sums up the Corinthians' faulty expectations, their, their, their thinking is that word already, the world to come is ours already, notice Paul's alternative in verse number 11. He says, to the present hour, in the here and now, in the here and now, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and so on. Paul isn't living in the world to come. He's living in the present hour. The Corinthians claimed that what was still not yet had come to them already. But Paul models a different approach entirely. One that recognizes that while glory is promised to us, it remains not yet. Not just yet. He lives now in the present hour in a world where to follow Jesus will mean for him hunger and deprivation. He does manual labor, he says, to eke out a living. He is reviled, although he blesses in return. He is persecuted, and he endures. He is slandered, and he entreats and pleads with sinners through the gospel to be reconciled to God. He has become, he says, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That, Paul says, is my normal Christian life, which a lot of people find appalling. Because they've got this idea that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everything ought to be great. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's not my experience. Like any of you, I've had my share of heartache. I've had my share of disappointments. Some days just aren't easy. And you won't find it in Scripture that we're called to a life of ease. And we do that about once a week just to make sure you are awake. Actually, we don't do that. I don't know what does. We're trying to figure it out. Trust me. At any rate, uh, now that we've got your attention, huh? It's a huge issue. And you've still got people today who are adopting this kind of thinking. And they will even almost point the finger of scorn. Oh, if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, should you be going through things like this? Check this out. Christians die of cancer too. Some Christians have diabetes I actually had a person try to convince me one time that if I was really living for the Lord, I wouldn't be a diabetic and have to wear this insulin pump. That's the prosperity gospel. It's insidious. It's pervasive in our world today. So the results of this this mistaken way of thinking, think about it for a moment. One of two things will happen if you buy into the Corinthians' uh, mistake here. First, you will either deceive yourself into thinking that you are, in fact, a cut above the rest, or you'll begin to boast, as they were doing, in their spiritual superiority and look down on others, or you will conclude that your failure to reach your best life now is all your fault. 
You ever had someone tell you that you would have, you would have experienced the healing that you had prayed for if only you would have had enough faith? That's bad theology. That's bad theology. Because it basically says, what a failure you are. That's why you're suffering. What weak faith you have. That's why you struggle to make ends meet. What a devastating lie of the devil the prosperity gospel is. But how easily it still creeps into the thinking of the very best of us. Even in ways we don't see it sometimes. Haven't you heard even mature Christians saying, for what sin of mine is God punishing me that life should be so hard right now? Maybe you even have said it to yourself. Why is this happening to me? Maybe I've missed something. Maybe there's something I should do, some level to which I I, I need to attain. I need to level up in my Christian life that will make everything all okay. Maybe my wife wouldn't have gotten that horrible diagnosis at the doctor last month if, if only I could... This is happening because it's my fault. You recognize that? So Paul says, learn to understand the times. Paul says, no, 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 that's not it at all. You must learn to understand the times. This is where we live now. We don't yet live in the world to come, a fully restored world. That's not yet. The glories to follow where sin has gone and where tears will all be wiped away and where regret will never again trouble us and suffering will never again intrude our lives. The glories to follow will come soon, one day, but not just yet. Not just yet. To the present hour, he says, to follow Jesus, Paul says, means joy, wonderful joy. It does mean joy, but it will be joy oftentimes through tears. It means progress in holiness, praise God. Progress in holiness, but it will be slow progress, hard-won progress, imperfect progress, till we go to be with Jesus one day at last. It does mean supernatural power flooding our lives, enabling us to say, yes, Lord, when he calls us even to do hard things, but it will be power displayed in the midst of our weakness. It's not easy. It's the power of the cross. Faulty expectations are fertile seedbed for pride. That's why Paul hits it so hard here. Get your expectations of the normal Christian life right. Paul is saying the same thing to us. Live in the present hour, not in the world to come. That is not just yet. Look forward to it. Long for it. Know that it's coming. But don't have faulty expectations in the here and now. And then Paul's tone seems to change just a little bit. And we look at the second major theme of his teaching here in this last part of verse, uh, chapter number four, and we see this family exhortation. You can see this, this kind of warm family language over the last part of the chapter. When you look at verses 14 and 15, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul saw himself as a spiritual father to these Corinthian believers. He had planted the church at Corinth and he had worked to disciple them. And and some of his team had been a part of that effort, of course. And so um, he had led many of them to faith in Christ. And so he is like a spiritual father to them, a parent to them through the gospel. And he has adopted 
uh, in verses 8 through 13, kind of this biting tone just a little bit, uh, the use of some sarcasm. But now, as a parent turns toward his children, he softens and he says, I'm not trying to shame you. He says, I'm trying to parent you. I'm trying to admonish you as my beloved children. You know, a lot of times as parents, we will try to use every tool at our disposal to reach our kids or to get through to them. Especially if we see them taking wrong turns and and going astray. That's precisely what Paul is up to here. His children in the faith, these these Corinthian believers whom he loves deeply, it's, it's as if they're about to drive off the cliff. And he's trying to steer them back into the middle of the road. He's giving them some guardrails, as it were. They're boasting. It's out of control. And so because he loves them with a parent's love, he admonishes them. And really, if I can extend the parenting metaphor just a little bit, hopefully not to the breaking point this morning, he uses three parenting tools to, uh, to drive his admonition home. And I dare say that every parent in the room this morning, everyone watching online, has probably used, if not all of these tools, you've used, at least used some of them. First of all, you'll notice in verse number 16, he models the right course for his children in the faith when he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. You ever heard a parent, whether they actually said it or, or, or it's, it's kind of the reality of where they are, really what they're saying is, do as I do, but don't do as I say. You know how exasperating that can be to a kid? And I believe scripture, when it teaches us that we're not to, to drive our children to frustration, I think that's what it means. Because it's really frustrating to a kid when you live by another standard than the one that you require of them in many respects. Oh, just do as I do, just do as I say, but don't necessarily do as I do. So Paul, in saying this imitate me thing, he's saying, this is something that I'm living every day. This is something that I'm living in the here and now. And obviously in the comparative mention of these texts, he's not saying, keep your eyes on me as opposed to Jesus. Don't look to Jesus. Look to me. Be imitators of me. No, he says in another place, he goes, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of God, as we read from Ephesians earlier. So he's saying, imitate me in all the struggling and the suffering and the demands for perseverance that is the normal Christian life in the here and now. Imitate me. And then he deploys Big Brother. (laughs) Second parenting tool that he uses here is he appeals to Timothy. Look at verse 17. He says, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now, Timothy was not his biological child. We have no reason to believe that. So again, he's referring to him being a, a son in the faith, a spiritual son. It's like your big brother. And sometimes big brother can get through when mom or dad can't. So Paul sends them Timothy, who reminds them of Paul, both in the way that he lives and by his teaching. And then he uses this. You ever said this? Don't make me come up there. You ever been on a road trip with your kids? And they're in the back, and they're fighting and squabbling and whining and complaining and all those things. And it's like, don't make me stop this minivan. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Don't make me come up there. And so notice what it says in verse number 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. We're going to see if you're the real deal or not, or if you're just all talk. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. 
What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's pursuing them. He's using every parental tool in the toolbox to try and bring them back from their pride to repentance and humility. He even is prepared to bring discipline to them. And you see that in verse number 21. He very much wants to come to them with love and a spirit of gentleness. But if he has to exercise discipline among them, when he comes, he's prepared to do so. How they respond to this family admonition will determine which route he takes. But his agenda is to call them back to repentance, to win them, not to dismiss them, much less to shame them or to wound them. You say, some of y'all are pretty arrogant. Don't think that I won't come there. I remember specifically a time when uh, I was probably an older elementary age kid, I guess eight, nine, ten years old, around in there somewhere. Um, I had this thing that I did um, that... I'm not proud of now, but I would sometimes go into our dining room table where we had a bowl of sugar sitting all the time. Remember back in the day when people always had a bowl of sugar sitting on the table? And I would take the lid off and I would go, and I would stick it down in that sugar and I would lick the sugar off. Some of you really judgmental people right now are looking at me going, that's why you diabetic, brother. (laughs) It may be true, I don't know. But here's the thing. So I'd gotten, I thought, smart enough that I could shake the sugar bowl, you know, so you couldn't see my, the indention of my finger in it. I wish I could put the lid back on. Well, one day, um, this, is, I, this would have been like after my mom passed away, so I'm ashamed to say I was probably a teenager when this happened. Um, I was doing that, thinking that I knew when my dad was coming home from work. But the deal was my dad came home early one day. So I had gotten so arrogant in my licking sugar off my finger thing that I had just thought, I'm going to go ahead and leave the lid off for a while, you know, so I can have easier access to the sugar bowl. And then just before dad comes home, I'll go in there and I'll kind of clean up and make sure there's no, you know, sugar on the table and everything. And I'll, I'll put the lid back on. But then he came home early and I got caught. I think that's kind of the idea with these Corinthians. It's like, don't, don't think for a minute, I'm not coming there. Some of you very arrogantly are thinking that way. But I will. I will come, God willing. And if I have to, I will use discipline. You know, and so he says, when I come, I'm going to shine a spotlight on the spiritual authenticity of these arrogant leaders in Corinth who are causing so much division and trouble. In other words, he's saying, I want to see if they are all talk or whether they know anything about the reality of supernatural power that is an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God. Not talk, he says, but power, reality, spiritual reality. Do they know anything about spiritual reality? That's the question he wants them to be asking themselves in advance of his coming. I want to find you living an authentic Christian life. It's really the question he wants us to be asking ourselves as we read these words as well. Is my Christian life a matter of talk or do I know spiritual reality? Is it mere words for me, outward show, or do I know anything of the power of the cross, the power of grace, the power and work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? That's what he's after. 
to call us to assess our hearts, to challenge us, to, to get real at last. He wants to call them, these Corinthians who, who prized oratory and rhetoric and philosophy and who dismissed Paul as an inferior speaker to understand that mere talk is so much irrelevance. It's the power of living an authentic Christian life. Suppose as this morning we interrogate our own Christian lives, we discover that it's been mere head knowledge and talk for far too long. Suppose we've been led by God under the ministry of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit this morning to confess that it's all show, that we're not living authentic Christian lives. What now? What do you do if you make that discovery this morning? I think there are clues for us in the passage. One of them comes out, if you look back at the portion where we read that Paul is going to send Timothy in verse number 17, that's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And so he's called them to imitate him, wants to model for them spiritual reality. And so he sent Timothy to remind them of what that should look like, his ways in Christ, spiritual reality, the life that is real in Christ. What do you do if you find that your Christianity is just an outward form, not an inner reality? What do you do if it's mere talk, but none of the power? You know, Easter's coming up here in a couple of weeks. One of the things a lot of kids especially look forward to at Easter time is getting one of those big old chocolate bunnies, you know? I'll never forget one of the first times I got one of those big chocolate Easter bunnies in my basket. And I broke that thing open, and I took a bite out of it and realized that thing is hollow. I'm like, there's not really as much chocolate here as it appears. I think that's a lot of Christians today. You look pretty good on the outside. You talk a good game. But there's really not much substance on the inside. Give me one of those Cadbury's, man. It's got that cream filling on the inside. I don't know why I'm on this sugar thing this morning. Man, my blood sugar's going up right now as I talk. I mean, some substance. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're living a real Christian life. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, I want you to understand the reality of living a life in Christ. Yes, there, there is so much to look forward to. No more tears. Can you imagine that? No more disappointment. No more frustrations with our fellow man and our crazy spouses and all the stuff that goes along with living life in this world. But that's all not just yet. We're living in a present reality. There's a call here to get our expectations right about the nature of the Christian life. Remember, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You'll have tribulation. I'll be with you to strengthen and sustain you every step of the way. But it'll be hard. That's why whenever you study scripture, and as it relates to hardship in our lives, now we're not talking about the consequences of sin, we're not even talking about temptation. But whenever there, there's teaching on hardship in our lives, you know what the position is supposed to be for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ? We are to bear up under it. Hupomene is the word. Bear up under it. Every time I think of that word, I think of a, I think of a person getting up under a, a weight bar, getting ready to squat a great deal of weight. You bear up under it. That's the position we're to take as followers of Jesus Christ when some of these hardships come into our life. 
What am I going to learn from this? I want to see myself, my spiritual muscles strengthened as I bear up under it. What is our natural inclination in those seasons? To run from it, right? God, deliver me from this. Take this away from me. Sometimes God needs you, wants you, has divinely ordained that you go through a storm so that you rely upon him. That's why it's faulty teaching. Whenever you hear people say, oh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. He consistently gives us more than we can handle in and of ourselves because he wants us to turn to him. There's stuff that comes into my life every day that in and of myself I can't handle. I've got to trust the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at here. It may be hard. Now, there's glory to come. There's glory to come. But, but right now, it's not just yet. And we're called to search our hearts in light of Paul's family exhortation. So as we close today, I just got to wonder, are, are you for real? Are you for real? Or is it all talk? If we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for a letter that was written thousands of years ago to a church in Corinth. And yet it is so powerfully applicable to us today in Van Alstine, Texas. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us when we have faulty expectations. When we strive to have merely a transactional relationship with you. Where we assume wrongly that if we'll do certain things, then you are obligated somehow to do certain things. To bless us real good. To make life easier. To put more money in the bank account. To restore my health. All the things that would really be nice, really be great, but not things you promised. Lord, I thank you that in your sovereignty, in your great love for us, you desire to be known and to be loved by us. Lord, forgive us when we are content to just talk a good game. May there be substance in who we are as followers of Jesus Christ to praise you and thank you for the immense joy that life brings, but at the same time to trust you, to turn to you, to lean on you when days are dark and the tears fall. Lord, I thank you that everything that you allow into our lives is ultimately for our good and for your glory as you are molding and shaping us into who you want us to be. Lord, may we have hearts of surrender this morning. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.